Hello, and welcome to the Healthcare Leadership Mindset. I'm your host, Yolanda Gonzalez, former administrative fellow and current administrative director at Mass General Hospital, located in Boston, Massachusetts. I invite you to join me as I engage with leaders in various roles across the healthcare field to gain real-life insights into their work challenges, the skills that have helped them succeed, and advice on how to get started if this is a path for you. So what are you waiting for? Let's start the journey today. I am incredibly excited for today's guest, Sally Mason Beamer, who is the Executive Vice President, Chief Administrative Officer, and Chief Financial Officer at Massachusetts General Hospital. Sally oversees the real estate facilities, finance, and support services of the hospital. She ensures effective operations for a broad range of non-clinical hospital departments, ranging from food service, cleaning and security, to information systems and compliance. She's a member of the financial leadership team of Mass General Brigham, the parent corporation of the Mass General, where she plays a role in establishing fiscal policies and the strategic framework for capital operating and investment decisions. She has worked at Mass General and Mass General Brigham for 28 years in various financial and hospital management roles. She is a Bachelor of Science in Human Services from Cornell University and a Master's in Health Administration from the University of Michigan. So Sally, thank you so much for being on today. Thank you for having me. Of course. So before we dive in, I would love it if you could just tell us a little bit about yourself and your current position at Mass General. Sure. I always start the story from the beginning, and I'm a little unusual in that I learned about the career of health administration from an eighth grade aptitude test, and I've been pursuing it ever since. Um, I'd worked every summer through both undergraduate and graduate school in the hospital uh, setting, and it really just confirmed for me that it was the right direction. It kind of combined my skills and interest in business with, I think, a mission orientation that was important to me. So when I concluded, I I ended up taking the administrative fellowship uh, direction here at Mass General, and and that was a a pivotal point in my career. It's where I learned what I like to do best, that I'm attracted to team-based, problem-solving, complex issues. I loved having a broad hospital perspective and data-driven decision-making. And I think that's why it's probably no surprise, even though it's not a non-traditional background, that that's why I went into finance as I wrapped up the fellowship. Um, I didn't have that traditional background, but I learned most of my skills really on the job. And over time, my scope expanded. I took on projects and assignments and, and learned from those. And it was after doing a major change initiative. Um, I was involved in installing the uh, electronic medical record here, EPIC. And I think that's when the organization started to view me as an operations leader, not just a financial driven leader. And that's when my portfolio really expanded to include all those non-clinical functions that you mentioned about me in the introduction. Who would have known an eighth grade aptitude test? That was actually something that I did not know about you. So it's good to know. You have had new areas added to your portfolio. And so I would be interested in hearing a little bit more about what is your approach to leading when you have a new area that's been added on? 
Yeah, I think the first thing, it's like any new job, actually the same kind of, I think, thought process goes into it. I think when you're new to an area, you ask a lot of questions, you listen, and you observe. So I asked the various stakeholders, people within the department or outside the department, their customers, you know, what do you view are the, their key strengths and what are some of the opportunities for improvement? And as you talk with people, you, you get areas of consistency or divergence. And then I think you start to probe and coach in any area that you think might be an opportunity for improvement. I also consider myself a visual learner. So I often ask for tours to go see um, and, and participate in, in the work of the department, see how it's being performed. And or I ask the managers a lot to, um, can you draw that out? Can you show me how that process works? And it's amazing when you ask questions that way, I think how much both sides learn. <laughs> um, because I think often they find themselves asking, gee, why does it work that way? So again, I think that style of learning together um, sometimes yields new insights for both me as the new manager and for them. Personally, I mean, I, I know I personally know you, and I think that's one of the things that stood out to me when I first met you was the type of questions that you would ask. And I really appreciated that you would ask questions that oftentimes I think other people are thinking, but are just too afraid to voice out loud. So I'm curious, what, what was it in your, or throughout your career that has encouraged you to, you know, maybe step, um, step beyond that fear that other people normally have and just ask the question? Yeah, I've heard that. And again, I think I started asking a lot of questions as a as a fellow in this organization, and it is a, a teaching organization. And I think I felt um, that it was normal or expected as a learner to be asking those questions. And when I did, I got positive reinforcement, and that led me to believe that it was okay. And I continued to do it earlier in my career and got some more positive reinforcement. I think the more people who come up to you after a meeting and say, I'm so glad you asked that, I was thinking the same thing, that empowers you to say, boy, this is a good thing. Uh, we're learning together. Um, and as I said, that's why I've continued to do it. And, and I'm glad I have because people have come and told me that they've tried to emulate that in their, in their meetings as well. Yeah, I think it, it's really important to setting a culture where it's okay to ask questions. I, I'm part of a lot of meetings where um, sometimes something is said and then there's just silence afterwards. And so I think like, I, I think when you have someone who is in a leadership role, such as you are, who isn't afraid to do that, it really does have that, um, uh, you know, uh, trickle down effect. Yeah. It's a missed opportunity if it happens after the meeting versus during. Yep. Exactly. Exactly. So you talked about how you completed a administrative fellowship at Mass General, and I want to take you back to that point in time. So you went through the administrative fellowship, um, and then just four years later, you stepped into a position as CFO. So I did a little bit of research, and I learned that the average age of a CFO currently is um, around 54. And so I am really curious to hear you know, what was that experience like taking on that big area of responsibility at such a young, um, or such an early stage in your career? 
Yeah, it was certainly a unique opportunity to get the, your dream job at 29. I'll be very transparent about that. I was 29 when I became CFO here. I got two pieces of advice, which I, I think were really important. You know, the first was I was very worried that people would be looking over my shoulder and saying, why didn't I get the position? They would be comparing their years of experience or their technical skills to myself. And the best advice I got there was from the from the people who promoted me. And, and they they really told me, be true to yourself, be who you are, keep doing a good job, and, and know we are confident and we have your back about why you got this role. And I, I think that was super helpful. Because over time, what I started to realize was as I was doing a, a new project or having a new experience, something I hadn't done before. Maybe I hadn't done that specific thing, but I'd done something very similar. And, and I think we can all reflect upon that in our career is, boy, I'd never sold a royalty stream before, but I had done other projects with similar characteristics and skills that I needed to be effective. And, and so my confidence built over time. And then the second thing I think, and this is the lesson I share with all early careerists, is when you get your dream job at a young age, as I did, you don't focus then on what's my next job. I actually had the luxury of saying, what are the skills, competencies, and experiences I want to gain from this seat? So I wasn't looking to move positions to gain that. I said, how do I gain it from the seat I'm in? And therefore, I really was often raising my hand to volunteer for a new committee or be part of a project or if somebody left the organization, take on a new role, but, but doing that from the chair I was in. And, and I actually think too often um, people earlier in their career are focused on the next title or step they need to take and not, again, what are the skills, experience, and competencies you can develop? Because if you develop them, all you have to do is get your foot in the door for the interview and sell again. I might not have done this, but here's something parallel I have done. And I have, have the skills to, to continue to grow and, and move up in an organization. Hmm. Do you recall as you stepped into your position, what skills and competencies you realized, like these are areas that I need to work on when you first stepped into that role? I think I viewed them in a series of progressions. Um, so again, it was it's projects probably on a scale from smaller to more complex. So I know over time, one of the things I really wanted to be responsible for organizational change management. And so one example of that that I had on the radar was doing a significant IT implementation because that's not about implementing the technology, right? That is about when you put in new technology, you're really changing people's jobs, their workflows, and their day-to-day -day routines. And that change management can be really hard on people. So that would be perhaps one of my best example of how, how you can think about it on a continuum um, up through organizational change management. Certainly. And for listeners who don't know, Mass General was established in 1811. So, um, you know, we've been around a long time and there are some things that do stick through <laughs> since its inception, but um, I can imagine that that was a big undertaking. And I definitely want to dive a little bit more into that, but, um, you know, maybe before I do, you had mentioned be the advice that someone gave you of being true to yourself. And I think so uh, an important thing 
within leadership is understanding more of yourself. And I, I think I've heard you say this before, like getting a really good sense of awareness of who you are, who, you, what your strengths are, what your weaknesses are. So can you talk a little bit uh, about how you did that for yourself? I mean, it sounds like you were taking aptitude tests when you were in like eighth grade. And so I'm curious to hear a little bit more of how you did that. Yeah, I I believe very strongly that self-awareness is actually one of the most important characteristics of a leader. Um, I think it's knowing yourself and knowing how you interact with others. So yes, I've done a variety of those leadership aptitudes as as I've gone on my career, whether it's Myers-Briggs, Personalysis, many, many more. Um, I've done those. Um, what I've learned about, you know, myself and, and I have to be comfortable and confident in it. You know, it shows what I'm motivated by fairness, the process of how groups make decisions, that my strength is in managing and organizing how the work gets done. So when I go to approach projects, I know those are the strengths I bring to the table and I need to complement and bring people who perhaps have different strengths and aptitudes. So um, I might want somebody who is more, uh, again, if I'm, in, if I'm the organizer planner, I might want someone who's a little more of a bold visionary um, as, a, as a different style from myself on that team. I think what you find is when you work with people that have a similar style, it may be easy or efficient, but is the quality and the diversity of thoughts and perspectives um, isn't quite as good. So I think I'm pretty careful to round out my teams with a real mix of both styles and skills um, to help make the product better. And again, I think part of that is, is knowing um, your own style um, and how to, how to identify those that, that perhaps think a little differently. Mm-hmm. I have to ask just because I think that sometimes um, I'm asking selfishly from my own experience. I know sometimes I have worked with people who are very different than I am or have a very different like thought process. And um, you're right. Like, I think it's great because there is diversity of thought, but it is challenging at times. So what's your advice when it does get a little bit challenging and you're kind of like, this person is being really visionary, but we need to get them, you know, to kind of see like how we're actually going to implement this. And so how do you balance or manage? Yeah, I actually think this, you know, doing these tools and this self-assessment gives you a vocabulary to acknowledge that with the person. So I used to feel like I was having conflict with a particular colleague. Um, and again, I would have identified the relationship as, as challenging and, and, and use negative um, terms to describe it. As, I, as my vocabulary and self-awareness grew, I was able to say, you're approaching this issue. I called him, you know, a visionary. This individual was on e-commerce and I was on tomorrow. They call it lily pad to lily pad. You know, I was very short-term focused. He was long-term focused. I couldn't skip steps. I, I wanted to go step one to two to three where he was leaping ahead of me. And so those are common vocabularies that we could talk. You're a lily pad jumper, I'm not. Um, and that says it's not interpersonal tension, it's we're approaching this from different perspectives. And that's much more comfortable when it's not personal, but it's, um, fair or different styles of how to attack a problem. And I think then sometimes we would try on that to meet in the middle. He would pull me long and I would bring him in short. Yeah. 
Yeah. And I think you learn, at least in my personal experience, I've learned a lot about myself when I am confronted or like not confronted, but when I've had, had to work with individuals who do think very differently than I am. And I think at the end of the day, you find yourself um, having experienced more growth throughout that process. Totally agree. So, you know, let's take us to, to present day. And I know that everyone has been talking about the COVID pandemic and I have to ask about it just because I feel like, you know, I'm really curious from both a financial and operational point of view, what your experience was like leading during the pandemic. And maybe if you could touch on two to three challenges that you're currently facing today and what steps you're taking to work through them. Sure, that's a great question. Um, I'll probably speak to one financial, but more the operational. So financially, the challenge during COVID was really trying to develop models to predict what range of likely outcomes or impacts this might have on our organization. And, and frankly, to try to get a sense of, of did we need to react? How strongly? Um, you know, Because so, we were very worried. We were very worried about what the impact would be to volume, to revenue, to cash flow, and, and what mitigation measures we would need to take as a result. So that was pretty challenging because there was just so much uncertainty and a lot of iteration um, and discussion. I think that's how you work through those as a group. How much risk can we tolerate as an organization before we need to react? So I spent a lot of time in that bucket. But I also had a lot of time in, in the operating bucket where I, I'd say my roles were, were twofold. You know, one was making sure I was physically present and talking with staff, providing that constant stream of communication and reassurance, what we knew and what we didn't know about the disease and what safe procedures were for staff and, and, and just trying to be with them in the trenches. But one of the most uplifting roles I think I played was early on, we were overwhelmed with offers to help, we called them. Whether it was uh, food being donated for staff members to help lift their spirits, or whether it was suppliers who wanted to convert from whatever their day-to-day -day business was into constructing PPE that could help us we were overwhelmed with opportunities and offers to help. And it was so just, it, it made me feel so good that people were willing to help, but we really need to set up processes of how to triage it and how to manage it um, because it was actually a challenge. It was so overwhelming. So that was, I'd say something just both uh, uplifting and unique that I did during COVID around um, standing up uh, almost 75 people involved in the organization that would triage, uh, figure out which were the most um, impactful offers uh, and bring them in and, and help us trial them out, whether it was delivering the food or, or trying out new face shields that a, a company had prototyped for us. Mm. That's interesting to hear about. And I, I wanna go back to the point that you made about assessing risk. And can you dive a little bit more into the details of like what factors you take into consideration when you're assessing risk and what ultimately helps you make the decision on how much risk you're willing to take? I think that is a most challenging issue for leadership teams, whether you're in a pandemic or not, I will say is people do have different perceptions of risk and how much they're willing to tolerate. 
I would say during COVID, um, our value system became very important. A lot of financial mitigation measures, um, things that could have potentially helped mitigate financial risk would have come at the expense of the workforce. And I think our value system said, particularly during pandemic, our people are our most valuable asset. Whether it was to care for patients, to innovate around different research or other interventions that we wanted to make sure we weren't trading off our value in our people to mitigate financial risk. And, and so that was nice to see. But I would say for any organization, that's the, that's the way you addressed it. Team-based discussions, um, putting everything on the table, mul hearing multiple perspectives, debating it out in the room um, and, and matched up against your value systems. You know, as I'm thinking about kind of the impact, both on the financial and operational level, I think one of the things that came to my mind was thinking a little bit about capital investments. And I know that when the pandemic first hit, a lot of things got put on pause. And so how would you say that the pandemic has impacted the decision-making process when it comes to future financial investments for the organization and for the system? Yep. I always tell people that budgets, whether it's your capital operating or operating budget, um, they're a reflection of your strategy, right? A budget is quantifying your strategy, making sure you're investing in things that are going to help you advance to where you want to go. So I think every organization coming out of COVID was asking, you know, is your strategy still valid? Um, what did you learn from this major disruptor? I'm not sure people have fundamentally changed their strategy. I think many people believe now that healthcare can be more agile, that we adopted um, things like, you know, telemedicine that we'd been wanting to do for ages. We, we, we rolled it out relatively quickly when we had to. So I think a number of people um, became more excited that we might be more agile and nimble in implementing our strategies, but I don't know if people fundamentally changed them. Um, in many cases, I think what I'm doing now is kicking the tires on elements, though, of those projects or investments. And I think we're looking at lessons learned from COVID. So an example of that might be, I, I find us asking more often, have we looked at this through the lens of equity or the social determinants of health because of lessons we learned in COVID? What about sustainability and resiliency? I think that theme emerged a lot from COVID. Or staff wellness. I mean, I think that's another example. We've always had you know, patient satisfaction, but staff satisfaction, staff wellness. So I think on these different um, areas investments, we're fine tuning them and asking some of those um, questions based on lessons learned. Mm -hmm. Speaking about investments, I know that over the past few years, you have helped oversee the planning efforts for a new building on our hospital campus. Can you tell us a little bit about what that process was like and maybe any unexpected challenges that may have come up that you didn't initially expect? Sure. Um, it definitely has, it's been a challenge for, again, I've described my style and the type of work I like to do overseeing a major building project like this has, has, um, taken me out of my comfort zone at various times for several reasons. 
One is, you know, you're, you're trying to plan a building that isn't serving the needs of tomorrow, but the future. And so again, given that the, it's uncertain and there are different perspectives on what that future might look like, um, it's a little out of my comfort zone. It'd be much easier if we knew exactly how care was going to be delivered in the next, say, 10, 20 years and could design a building for that. But, but again, we, I think we have to anticipate where is it going in the future and how do we have flexibility in the design or, or anticipate changes in the delivery of healthcare and make sure the physical structure can accommodate those changes. So that's been a little bit challenging. I think the second is um, the approvals for this building are, are in a public and regulatory process, inclusive of neighbors and, and uh, public officials and many more. And as someone who's used to, I'll say, a more linear kind of approach to things, um, questions, concerns, issues have come out of the woodwork uh, from all different directions. And so it's been a challenge, I think, to uh, document them and make sure we're addressing them in perhaps more orderly and structured fashion that I would prefer. I really had to become more uh, nimble and adaptive um, in how you just work with a broad range of um, interest groups on their particular issues. Um, so again, I'd, I'd say that has been uh, an interesting challenge. It's very different um, from, I'll say, my internally focused work where you have a lot of control over how it gets done. Yes. And just a comment, when I was going through the fellowship, I remember that there was a kind of like a town hall meeting that we had with the surrounding community of where this new building is going to come up. And I just remember all the kinds of questions that were coming up uh, for anywhere from like, you know, more traffic or what are we going to do about parking or anyways, it was just really, um, you know, when it comes to planning out of building, I think that's maybe a piece that oftentimes may get forgotten or not really thought of as like, yes, you have to engage your stakeholders. And part of that is going to be the community that um, you're, you know, building something next to. So that was really interesting to observe. And you mentioned, you know, something interesting, which was anticipating where healthcare is going and not just building, uh, you know, a building just be to prepare for say 10 years into the future, even 20 years, but beyond that. And so I would love to hear from you, where do you see healthcare going? There's a loaded question. I wish if we all had a crystal ball, I think uh, our strategic planning processes would be very different. Um, you know, the first thing I think I would say, and obviously putting my finance lens on, is that I do think health needs to evolve because right now one of the primary concern is is healthcare affordable for society right are we delivering it um, in the most cost effective way and by that i don't mean just per unit of service but is every service needed how do we organize and efficiently deliver the care that people need where they need it what can what needs to be done in a hospital setting what can be done in freestanding outpatient what can be done in the home and how do we meet the expectations of a society who's aging, um, but also I think their wants and needs are evolving? And how do we uh, address the cost side of it? I think those are the challenges we need um, to figure out 
over the next, say, 10 to 20 years in healthcare. Mm -hmm. And it sounds like, to your point, um, I imagine that there are some there exists some degree of flexibility within this plan when it comes to building out a project. It sounds like this is, you know, this is a phased approach to a project. That's not just something that, like you said, is concrete um, and subject. Uh, correct. I think um, a, a facility becomes, you know, a, has to be a flexible infrastructure that can adapt and react to whether it's changes in technology changes in, and again, by technology, I mean both information systems as well as the equipment that we use. Um, I do think the high intensity care will remain in, you know, in hospitals, but, but we are trying to figure out how to integrate and connect to the evolving model that we see from, from home uh, throughout patient. So the goal in building designs is absolutely to be as, as flexible and adaptive as possible. Mm-hmm. Well, I will, uh, I know I will keep a close eye on the building and uh, can you remind me again when it's set to go, uh, when it's set to be completely built? Yes, it's a phased opening, but we won't be completed till 2030. So we have a, a long time to continue working through a regulatory process, hopefully getting approvals and then a long construction cycle. So 2030. Great. All right. Maybe I'll bring you back on uh, at that time. <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> um, so, you know, as I'm hearing about your journey and your career, I mean, you have seen so much data. I can, you know, I can only imagine how much data has been presented to you, how much data you end up presenting. And so I think we kind of are in this place where we have so much data that sometimes it can be a little bit paralyzing and we're kind of like, you know, what do we do? Where do we pull from? And so what do you think has helped you in being successful with knowing which data to pull and using it in a way that helps drive actionable decisions? So I probably would consider myself the queen of PowerPoint, um, that I view PowerPoint, and again, it's a blessing and curse, but I view it as a tool that forces you to tell a story. And so what I seek to do is see how the data gets translated to information and per and through visualizations, right? What graphic or table or combined with bullet points tells a story? So I spend a lot of time, I think, working with my team on that question. What's the story? And then what visuals or interpretations of that data tell that story? Um, and I think that that's why I said it is the blessing and curse, because I've been in meetings where people feel like they are bored by PowerPoint slides being um, kind of put up in front of them. But I don't think we can get away from the idea that the key of data is to turn it into a compelling story that resonates with people um, and that motivates them to do something different. Definitely. And it's interesting because it sounds like, I mean, this is, that sounds like it's data that you kind of know the source and you know where to pull from and you know, like, uh, you know, you know what you can trust and what you can't. And I'm curious, when you are presented with data, maybe externally, that may not necessarily come, um, like you may not truly know the source or how it's pulled. I think something that I learned from you was, you know, being able to question the data and really dive down to understand where it's coming from, what it's telling you. And so 
Can you just talk us through that? Like, yeah, when you're presented with external data, what do you find yourself thinking about or reflecting and asking? Oh, that's a great question. And some people do it better than others. I'm always amazed at someone who can pick up a rapport and, and hone in on it instantly, that top-down person. Again, I often say I'm a bottom-up. So I think what I do is I do start by asking a lot of questions. Where we started this interview, I ask a lot of questions about how you compiled it, what your thinking was and your approach to the analysis. I think because if you understand the methodology of how they built it up, and, and I understand those assumptions, because I, I think for better or worse, we have to understand every data analysis often has a set of assumptions behind it. And I think being very clear about those can, can tell you, and, and sometimes your questions as you move through get more probing. Were those assumptions objective or perhaps was somebody trying to lead you in a particular direction? So I, I go bottoms up. I probe the methodology, the approach, try to ferret out what the assumptions were, and again, turn that into a dialogue, not necessarily an inquisition, around um, different interpretations and, and where data might take you. I, I like the uh, advice that you gave about understanding the methodology and using it as a dialogue. I feel like when you can approach people in a way where you're like, I'm just trying to learn about how we got to kind of what you're presenting, it makes that person more open to sharing kind of why they got to where they, what they're presenting. If I were being more cynical, I've often told my staff, tell me the answer you want and I can create analysis to show it. And so this is why you, you do have to be very careful, right? There, you can build a bias into an analysis. And that's why I think that that dialogue is so important because often data is not the answer. It's the start of the discussion. Oh, that's so good. Do you expect or think that there are people that can kind of just take data and just run with it? and not really dig into it the way that they should? I think it's possible. I think when you want to short circuit a decision, you want to say, look, the data takes me here. It's obvious. This is the only way we can go. And, and it's often not that obvious. And particularly, I find, as I said, I'm attracted to this place because it's a large, complex organization. There's nothing so straightforward that one simple data table or chart it says it gives you the obvious answer. Yes. We wish it could be that way, but no. I wish it could be that simple. Yes. <laughs> it definitely is not. From my observations, I definitely kind of see you being as a person tapped to lead some of these different initiatives that are currently going on through not just our organization, but our symptom system. What uh, would you say has been helpful, not only in just creating the change, but sustaining it for the long run? Yeah, I mean, change is very hard. And I think change management, it becomes very personal in the communication and the readiness. So I will use the example from when I implemented the electronic health record epic here at the organization. We had all kinds of tools and checklists to to, to assess readiness, you know, how ready were we? And, and there's some real technical steps, you know, did the staff go through training? Um, you know, have they been practicing in the new workflows and things like that? But down to the wire, to me, it wasn't the checklists. The, the day before go live, I sat in my office and I called the directors of various departments and said, I'm counting on you. Do you feel ready? Do you think your team's ready? What are you worried about tonight? What should I be worried about? And had a lot of that just frank, no checklist, no script, just 
you know, person to person, you know, I'm counting on you. We got to get through this together. I'm here for you, but I'm also counting on you. And, and so to me, there is a real personal relationship element of uh, people being committed that you're going to work through the change together with, when things get tough, because they will, um, and you're going to support each other and have each other's back. And, and so um, I love doing both. I loved having the, the concrete tools and checklists, but I also loved that person to person conversation about we're in this together. Mm-hmm. I love that you brought that up because I, I think it made me think of there's the things that you learn when you're going through an MHA program and PH, MBA, and then there's the things that you learn when you're actually in the role and seeing what, you know, the responsibilities through. What would you say apart from that is something that you've learned through your personal experience that you didn't learn when you were going through your program? Oh, that's a great question. See, I feel like so much, the learning is so much more meaningful when it's experiential. And so I guess to me, all my learnings were from areas probably where I made a mistake and I wish I had done it differently. (laughs) And I think the hard thing is nobody, you know, we all like, particularly if you have that academic phrase of reference, like, what do you learn in school? You know, how to get good grades, how to do everything right. And you actually learn the most from things you, you, you would have done differently in retrospect. So I think I value, um, experiential learning a lot more than the textbook learning. Um, And I value people who, when something didn't go well, can, without blame, can go through a diagnostic or a root cause, why did this not go well and what could be better next time? Mm -hmm. And I think that comes from, again, maturity and experience of it's okay to make mistakes. It's, it's, it's how you, how you recover from them. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's a, that's really important to keep in mind. And I know that I get a lot of questions of, you know, what are some classes that I need to take when I'm going through X program or what do I need to make sure I really do? And I, I think to your point, like getting that experience, even if it's something small, like you can learn something like that. And I think a number of different roles um, and even through personal experiences that you have outside of work too. So. Correct. Um, and again, that continuum, right. From, from maybe being somebody on the team who's observing and has a minor role and then getting more responsibility and leadership over time, you, you still learn, right? You learn from that, even if you're taking the minutes, you're learning while you're observing, and then you grow and, and you do more yourself and you take on more responsibility and you just keep building on that learning. Yes. And I think that's something important for people to remember. I really want to point that out is uh, sometimes you are put into positions that don't seem glamorous or kind of are behind the scenes. And I think people who see that as an opportunity to say, Hey, like I'm in the room right now. Like there's always something that you can learn from those, uh, situations. So I really hope, um, that listeners can kind of take that and maybe look and seek out opportunities that would allow them to do that. Absolutely. So you are, incredibly busy. I mean, I have seen your calendar before and I know all the different initiatives you're juggling. I mean, you've taken on new areas within your portfolio. And so I have to ask how you prioritize and protect your own time um, to get what you need to done while also balancing, you know, having a family or, you know, being there to support your team um, and those around you. Can you talk a little bit about how you do that? 
Sure. Um, obviously, I think, again, it's easy to articulate what your values are. I say, you know, I'm a mom first and my job comes second. I, I will say that my team and my people are my most important asset. And I think what you have to do periodically is look and say, it does my calendar really reflect that? And, and so I at least twice a year go through my calendar and say, where am I spending my time? and try to make adjustments to that. Those are my conscious. I probably do it more than that, but I, I consciously do it twice a year where I look and say, what meetings can I delegate? Cause I don't need to be in them anymore. Um, right now I'm in a phase where I'm trying not to email my, my direct reports as things pop up, but rather put them on the list because I meet with them regularly mm -hmm. um, and save things. So, so not to do, I call it, you know, the ping pong management approach or tag your it, throwing it over the fence to them, but hold it and wait for a meeting so we can talk about it and it can be more personal and not all electronic and email. So I try and course correct because I think I like everybody else say what my values are and then look at my calendar and say, you know, is it really reflective and then try and fine tune it from there. There is no perfect uh, balancing or juggling. I think the first thing I would tell everybody um, is, you know, don't strive for perfection um, because I don't know if it exists and what's right for one might, might not be right for others. And, and the example I will use here is that when my children were younger, I had a four day schedule. Um, I felt very blessed to be only come into the office four days a week, something that's probably more common now with, with flex schedules. But at the time, that was not the norm. And I, I, I felt so lucky to have only four days in the week that I never disconnected. And in fact, it was better for me when I went back to five days a week in the office because I was better with my time management and setting boundaries that when I was home, I was more attentive and and. Everything we've learned about remote work, boy, those lessons that I felt like from my early days and, and when my kids were young, I'm hearing for people in the remote environment. So um, still very true today around how to have those boundaries between work life and personal life, because I think we all do need to recharge our batteries and, and, and find times for the things that are most important to us. I have some rapid fire closing questions for you. These are really meant to be like us just to get to know you a little bit more and we should, um, you know, quick responses will be fine. So you had mentioned Myers-Briggs. So I want to know what is your Myers-Briggs? Oh no, you're, I'm not going to remember mine, but um, boy, if someone could tell me the scales, I would pick mine out <laughs> immediately. Um, so I guess let's see extrovert or introvert. Extrovert, barely 50, 50. Okay. Do you remember intuitive or sensing? Like intuitive, you kind of rely on your gut. Sensing, you kind of look at. Oh, sensing data. Uh, <laughs> um, okay. I think those are the two. I always blank on. Oh, uh, thinking, feeling. A huge thinker. Not a lot of feeling. And then the last, I think, is it um, judging or perceiving? Oh, giant judge. Giant judge. <laughs> All right. There you go. <laughs> exactly. I feel like you always. Uh, once you know the two, you know where you land. Yep. Um, what can we find you doing on most days outside of work? Uh, my kids' activities or sports, playing or watching. <laughs> yes, I know you're a sports fan. So what is your favorite sports team to cheer on? Uh, Patriots. Nice. Um, who is someone that you admire and why? Jim Mongan, former CEO of Mass General, was always my mentor. My my favorite expression, which I use today from his, was um, 
he was this amazing leader and he would always make sure you had three points and one of them was a verb. And so I still say when someone is going on and on three points and a verb. That's, that's really good advice. Um, I'm going to write that down. What is the best advice that you've received that you can share with us today? True to yourself. I think was, was that advice I got earlier. And I would say it to everybody else. Don't, don't try and fit the mold of what you think the job wants or how others do it. Um, I, I think being authentic and self-aware. Yes. Well, with that, Sally, I learned a tremendous amount from you. And I think that um, you're not only like just a great leader, but just personally, I think I admire so much about you. And I really appreciate you being on today's episode and sharing more about yourself, your leadership. I learned a lot from this conversation. And again, just want to thank you for being on here today. I want to thank you for having me. And also thank you for doing this podcast. I'm, I'm just so impressed with what you're developed here. So thank you.